16 and 17 in Romans 1, because these two verses are the, basically the subtitle of their whole book. Most of the next 11 chapters will be unpacking these two verses. All the chapters we'll look at between now and through chapter 11 will relate to these two verses in some way. Um, and, and so we're really slowing with these two verses taking our time, but this will be the last specific message on these two verses that you'll hear from me. We might come back to what from the Jew, to, from first to the Jew and then to the Gentile means, which is in, um, go forward one slide if you could. That is in um, verse 16. We might, thank you, Ed. We might have someone from El Shaddai come and preach to us because that passage, that phrase, first to the Jew and also to the, to the Greek, is a huge part of why El Shaddai exists as a messianic Jewish congregation. So I've been talking with the lead pastor of El Shaddai about coming to us to preach about that. But for me, we're moving on from this passage today, <coughs> 16 and 17, uh, and we're jumping off the cliff into the rest of Romans 1. I was just praying with Holly and Jacob in the hall. Um, and I'm just really aware, as I was last week, that um, I'm preaching to you guys things that, like, for real, things that can't really mean much to you and you can't really see unless miraculous work happens and is sustained in your heart. I'm, I'm preaching about spiritual things which... Are, are it's so possible that these things w will seem like pretty meaningless to you and pretty much just typical churchianity prose. Like, okay, Jesus, the Bible. Like, we're so used to hearing these things. And even if you've only heard them for the first time today, unless the Lord's at work, like, we just can't, we just can't care that much about these things. And, and I'm just aware of that again, and, and, and as I was last week. But as I said last week, these are the most important things that exist in the universe. Like, if we were right the way that we should be right, myself included, these things should throttle us and m mess with our hearts in massive ways. We, we should be shaking with trembling and rejoicing with gusto as we engage with these truths. And, and I'm not like gonna judge you if you don't get up and hallelujah, you know, every four minutes in the sermon. Like that's, I'm not looking for an emotional reaction from you guys necessarily. I, I just wanna say like, can we just pray for a moment? Because we need his help so much to see these things, to care about these things. We, he has to be at work. And I, I don't want to go through the motions and I don't think you guys want to go through the motions just sitting here for the next 40 minutes, possibly plus, uh, just hearing a bunch of Christianity words. Like, like let's ask him to really let this by his grace matter to us, really disclose himself to us through this. So would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the prayer of Jacob and Holly. I don't want to belabor that prayer. They were, exactly, Lord, I believe what we need to pray. But we, I ask now with everybody in this room praying with me now, and you know how much I need spiritual sight, God. Would you give your Holy Spirit today would you give your Holy Spirit to us today 
to assist us to see? Would you give us eyes to see and hearts to care? And Lord, would you forgive and clean my wickedness, which, Lord, you know in my heart that my flesh wars to want to be heard and be praised and commended. It has nothing to do with you when my heart is like that. So Lord, I just admit that and put that aside. I can't change my own heart. But I ask for your sake and your glory and for, for our joy in you, Lord, I want joy. <laughs> I want to meet with you right now. I don't want to just do something for others. I also want to eat but everybody in here should and probably does want to eat this morning at your banquet table. So please, would you feed us? Would you make us see and make us understand and make us feast at your banquet table that you be glorified in your word and we would be given joy today and strength to keep going to keep going, because we can't see unless you open our eyes. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, as we've looked at these two verses that I have spent trying to unpack over the last several weeks, we have seen, hopefully, that there is this grand theme, which is the theme of this book, called The Righteousness of God a righteousness that is revealed and offered to mankind through Jesus Christ. And I've argued that at the core of this term, the righteousness of God is this astounding grace in which God Almighty pronounces a verdict of righteous over sinners that are otherwise condemned by his judgment, his just righteous judgment and who are unrighteous in themselves in this court of justice. But God pronounces them innocent, acquitted, righteous. And he does this by accounting the unrighteousness of us sinners to himself. He puts it on himself. God takes our unrighteousness on himself in the person of his son, Jesus, who then undergoes the condemnation from his father for all the unrighteousness and sin of sinners and takes the full punishment of all of the unrighteousness and sin of sinners on himself, which enables his father to Account your sin debt and my sin debt paid in full. And on the basis of that payment in his court of eternal justice, he declares those who trust in Jesus righteous, forgiven, innocent, blameless, acquitted, justified, declared righteous. That's what that word means, justified, declared righteous. It doesn't mean you're perfect yet, though you will be because of that declaration, which we'll get into later. But it means that you stand in God's sight, justified, righteous, declared righteous in his court of heaven. And Paul will say in Romans 3 later that this is how God shows that he is righteous. 
that he's not just giving you a free pass. No, he, he takes your unrighteousness. And he just shows that to the whole world. In verse 26 of verse 3, if we go to the next slide, verse 26 of chapter 3, it said that, or look in the middle of that passage right there. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. This is the righteousness of God revealed in the cross. Because in his forbearance, he had left sins committed beforehand, unpunished. We talked about that last couple of weeks, that God... Uh, he, he has a bunch of people in heaven and the, the court of justice could say to him, why are these people out in heaven? And he says, listen, my son, my son has died. I am just, I am righteous in letting these people into heaven because my son has died for them. This is the most important stuff in the universe that exists. God is a God of justice. He is righteous. And this is how we are able to be saved from our sin and be able to be forgiven and be able to be in eternity at peace with God. This is the only way. And, and so God is trying to make it clear that this is the gospel that saves. And, and what I want to talk about today regarding this righteous standing, this justification that we receive before God is how we receive it and how we must go on in it. How we receive this justification, this declaration of righteous that never ends over our lives, that are up and down and full of mistakes and failures and sins, and yet this righteous standing before God never changes. How do we get this? How do we get this? That's what I want to talk about this morning. How we get it and how we must go on in it. How we get it and how we must go on in it. The answer for both, how we get this righteous standing and how we must go on in it, how we must continue in it, is the same. It's faith. It's trust. It's depending on God for it. We receive this righteous standing by faith the only way we could. We can't earn it, so the only option left is that we, we receive it as a gift by faith. Paul says in verse 16 that the gospel, the good news, becomes salvation to all who believe. To all who believe. It is not, by the way, in verse 16. If we can go back one slide again, Ed. If you look at verse 16, it says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And this is important. It is not to all those who believed past tense. The, the Greek in that word believes is as it's translated there. It, it's present active indicative. It means to those who believe. We might read this better. To all those who are believing or continue to believe. And, and just to be clear so we don't, we don't overlook this. What they're to believe God for is that he gives them a righteous verdict as a gift to those who trust him for it. That's what they're to believe, that he will give them this gift, that he does give them this gift of righteousness in his court. And, and by the way, this implies that they know they need such a righteous verdict. It implies that they understand they need the blood of Christ. No one will want this truly in their heart if they don't see that they're a sinner who needs it, which is why he'll spend so much time in the next three chapters talking about our sin so that we'll really understand we need this. But it's a gift of God's righteous verdict that is to be believed. And when it's believed, it's received. But we are to go on believing God for it. We continue believing. I want to show this to you more clearly if we look at a dynamic between verse 16 and 17, these two verses. So if we can go two slides forward, 
Next slide, Ed. There it is. I want to talk about these parallels in verse 16 and 17. Verse 16 and 17. In 16, Paul says the gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe. And then in verse 17, he explains why this is so. Because within the gospel is revealed what? The righteousness of God. And that's what I've been talking about. This declaration over your life. He gives you a righteousness you don't have. It comes from him. That's what we call justification. He declares you righteous in his courtroom. And God says that this is what salvation consists of. Verse 16, this is the gospel. It's the power of salvation. Verse 17, because within it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Do you see that parallel? Gospel of your salvation, 16, the righteousness of God revealed, 17. Do you see that? Do you guys see it? Michelle, do you see it? (laughs) I'm sorry, picking on you. But I'm getting kind of technical, but it's not complicated. I want to make sure I don't lose you here. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And then he elaborates on what he means by that in 17. That's 16. In 17, he elaborates and says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Do you see that? These are parallel passages. Paul says one thing in 16, and then he explains it more in 17. That's what parallelism means. Do you guys see that? Okay. So the gospel that's the power of salvation is explained as in 17, the righteousness of God revealed, the gift of righteousness over your life from God. Okay, those are parallels. Here's what else is parallel. Look at 16 and 17 again. Verse 16, to everyone who believes, verse 17, from faith to faith. So in verse 16, to everyone who believes is unpacked by this other phrase, from faith to faith, okay? And, and Paul is trying to explain in verse 17, from faith to faith, what he means by verse 16, to everyone who believes. So to all who believe in verse 16 is parallel with from faith to faith. So he's explaining to everyone who believes by this phrase from faith to faith. So let's talk about what faith to faith means from last message. Just want to review this. It was at the tail end. Paul says this gift of righteousness is given to us from faith to faith. You might require show this, this from to language, from blank to blank. It only shows up one other time in the New Testament, and that's in 2 Corinthians 2, where Paul uses the same from blank to blank. In Romans, it's from faith to faith, but in 2 Corinthians, it's different. And let's see what that is. Next slide. For we are the aroma of Christ. Now, Paul is talking about his gospel ministry to unbelievers And here's what he says about it. He says, we, we representatives of the gospel, we apostles who are bringing the gospel everywhere, okay? We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Both people get the aroma of Christ. Those who are being saved get the aroma of Christ because we preach the gospel whether you believe it or not. And those who are perishing get the gospel. They just refuse it, okay? So he says to one those who are perishing, a fragrance, an odor of death to death. To the other, a fragrance, like a perfume from life to life. So he's using that death to death, life to life. Same phrasing he uses in Romans 1, 17, faith to faith. And what he seems to mean here in 2 Corinthians, which will help us with Romans is that when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to someone who does not want God, it smells like death to them. They just don't want it. They just don't want to have, just get away, uh, get, get that away from me. This is Jesus talk. This, 
or, or worse, or I'm going to arrest you and throw you into prison if you don't stop preaching the gospel to me. But it, there's just this an aversion to it. It seems like death, and their rejection of it confirms that they are in a state of spiritual death. And they show, Paul is intimating here, that by the rejection of it, they're dead to God. And unless God gives them the ability to see the gospel for what it really is, they are destined to experience an eternal death to come. The gospel is, when it's rejected, it's from death to death. There's a, there's a continuation of death unless God changes them. So their initial engagement with the gospel confirms that they're spiritually dead and it confirms that they will later experience another death, an eternal death. That's why he says from death to death. Super sobering, scary stuff. This is the Bible, <laughs> okay? Like, we gotta talk about this. Not super comfortable, warm, fuzzy stuff. The Bible, gotta talk about it. Conversely, happier stuff to talk about. When the gospel comes to someone who recognizes it for what it is, the truth of God, they confirm that they have come to life. God has given them life to see Christ for who he is, their savior. And this life that's born in them, when they hear the gospel, it will only lead to more life. Ultimately, eternal life. Life at the beginning only continues to more life. In eternity, life is confirmed by the reception of the gospel and it will be continuous. It will go on to eternal life through the final judgment into heaven, eternity, into eternity forever. The life in the person sees God in the gospel and it keeps on seeing God in the gospel. Life is experienced and continually experienced. So take that back to Romans, faith to faith. It speaks to the same thing. The initial reaction to the gospel is faith and that will continue. The nature of faith that's real when someone really believes the gospel will continue. It will go on and on and on. Faith is experienced and faith is sustained. Faith starts and faith continues. So some translators have rendered this phrase in Romans 117 that it is a righteousness from God, a declaration of righteousness over your lives that is received by faith and is by faith from beginning to end. Faith to faith from beginning to end. Paul is using this statement to reinforce something that we see in many other places. The Christian life is a life from beginning to end that is lived by faith in the gospel. The Christian life is a life from beginning to end that is lived by faith in the gospel. And at the center of this gospel is the righteous verdict of God over your life, righteous. That you don't deserve that you don't look like all the time, that God, however, has declared over your life because of the blood of Christ. Crazy, incredible, infinite, like barely understandable mercy that doesn't go away. You change, it doesn't change. You have a great day, great. His mercy's over you. You have a terrible day, too bad. His mercy's still over you. 
And living by faith is believing that and continuing to believe in that. And here's the way I could sum it up. If I could say this is the thing I want you to get today more than anything else. Next slide, please. Next slide, please. Thank you. Of essential importance to the endurance of your life in Christ and it not shriveling up and dying is you continuing to hold on to this truth by faith that the blood of Christ has won for you a righteous standing in God's court forever. If you wanted to write that down or take a picture of it, you don't have to, but that, that's what I'm trying to say today. Everything I'm saying is, is, is supposed to load into this of essential, critical, non-negotiably important importance to the endurance of your life in Christ, real life, and, and it not shriveling up and dying is you continuing to hold on to this truth by faith that the blood of Christ has won for you a righteous standing in God's court forever. That must be held on to you. That must be held on to by you. That must be important to you and not become stale and rote and dumb. And you and I have to fight for that. And if this is true, if what I'm saying is really true, if it's really in Romans 16 and 17, then we should see Paul making this truth plain in other places, right? Like I've done some things with Greek phrases and rare dynamics of from to phrasings in scripture, but maybe we could see it plainer and we do, we do. I'll just give you two examples. Look at first Colossians one with me. It's right up here. Here's what Paul says. Same guy speaking to the church in Colossae. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Just read that again. I'll let you read that again. Just read it carefully. Just take a second to read that yourself. Make sure you read that right now. Please. There is strange but clear logic in these verses. Um, He has now reconciled you. Verse 22. He has now reconciled you. This is past tense phrasing with present effects. Okay? It's not rocket science. I use some tricky words. It just means he says it's done. He has now done it. And it is established reality right now. You are reconciled now. it, It is true now. But then in verse 13, he does this weird thing. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. It's the same thing he's saying in Romans 1, 16, 17. You have a righteousness from God. You do. You have it. If you keep holding on, if your faith is a faith that moves from faith to faith, if you keep believing it, God for it. Same thing, maybe a little bit more clear in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Look at this with me. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. You're standing in it right now. I preached it to you in the past. You received it, and you're standing in it right now. And verse 2, by which you are being saved. 
right now, it is saving you. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he goes on to explain the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose on the third day. He doesn't use the same phraseology of righteousness and justification, but that's how we get the declaration of righteousness. He dies for our sins and he rises to justify us. So Paul says, that's the gospel I gave. You believed it. You're being saved by it. If you hold fast to the word. In other words, if you don't hold fast to the word, he says, you believed in vain. That's what he says at the end of verse four. Unless you believed in vain, unless you believed in an empty way, if you let go of this gospel as your only hope before God for the forgiveness of your sins and your righteous standing before God, if you've let go, if you've let go of it, if you're not believing it anymore, if you've moved on from it and you, you're into other ideas about how to be right in the universe, except Christ is a thing you don't really need anymore, then your faith was emptiness. It was, it was superficial. It wasn't saving faith. It wasn't real. Because saving faith stays. It sticks. When God saves you, he keeps you. What Paul is saying here is he is, he is calling us to live out in this passage the same thing that he talked about in Romans 1, 16 and 17, that we must keep believing the good news of Christ's death as payment for our sins which justifies us in God's courtroom. We must never, ever abandon our hope that our righteous standing in the eternal court of God's justice has been won for us by Jesus. We have no other hope to be accepted by, and Paul's gonna go at great lengths to explain this in the Romans in the next few chapters. Painful links he's going to go to. But he's going to try to show that we have no other hope to be accepted by God except by the righteous standing he gives us in Christ when he took all our unrighteousness and was condemned for us there. That's our only hope, but it's our sure hope. And we can't let that go. We can't let that go. We have to fight to keep holding on to that. This doesn't mean that we, look, in one respect, what I'm saying is that, that the Christian life is a life fighting to hold on to incredibly good news. The Christian life is a life fighting to believe against all other opinions and ideas that God loves us and that he forgives us. And that he is the kind of God who would take the worst things about us and put them on himself and be killed for those things so that we would never, ever have to lose him. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, is asking us to believe the best news imaginable in light of bad news. That our God has saved us through the blood of his son and will never let us go and that we must continue to hold on to that truth. And that holding on to it, that blossoms in our lives in, in, in beautiful, incredible, life-changing ways. And we'll talk about that in a second.
the blossom of new life, of Holy Spirit infused, walking with God beauty, loving him, loving people, a life change. That has to be nourished and renewed and rested and, and doctored and repaired over and over again in this incredible nutrient-rich soil called faith in the free gift of God's declaration of righteousness over you. Like we, we want to love people. We want to love God. We want to have joy. We want to have energy to serve him. We want to see our lives change. We want to move away from sin and move into holiness. We want to stop old bad habits that corrode and corrupt and hurt and damage our lives, lives of others. We want to make progress in holiness and righteousness. We don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to go around saying, I'm saved and I believe it, I'm fine. And then just be hateful, awful, conservative, religious people. Like we don't want that. Nobody wants that. But that kind of life change, that kind of fruit of love and patience and kindness and gentleness and peace and self-control, it has to be nourished and protected and healed over and over again when we fail. It, it has to be rooted in this beautiful soil called the gospel of God's righteous declaration over your life because of Christ's blood. This, this soil is the soil that blossoms all kinds of other beautiful flowers. It's the door that opens a million other blessings. Like the door of justification opens the, it opens the door to, to adoption into God's very family. That we become his daughters and sons so we can know him. No longer as our judge but as our very father forever. The door of this gospel declaration of righteous in Christ. It opens the door to a new heart given to us in the new covenant so that our hearts actually really do change and we actually start becoming righteous, in, not just as a declaration, but in our actual lives. It opens the door to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who comes to live in us forever so that we can commune with our Father and follow Him by His power and not by our strength. It opens the door to access to the throne of grace and mercy where he commands us, doesn't just invite us, but commands us to come with confidence that he loves us with sympathy and with mercy and with compassion and will help us in every time of need if we believe in for it. Because Jesus has won all this for us, but all these realities, they must be nourished and sustained and repaired and allowed to flourish in the soil of the truth that we are already justified. That despite our sins, despite our continued imperfections and failures, that we are already declared righteous by the blood of Christ. <sighs> and that's hard to keep wrestling. Like if you're seriously wrestling with your sin and you get into the ring with it, it's hard. Sin is tough. It's a bully. We're lazy, we're apathetic, and we, we wallow in it, and we screw up our lives, and we hurt the people we love. We're holy and assertive in our holiness, 
we start to get self-righteous, we start to get condemning, we start to get self, we start to get judgmental. It's hard. Our hearts are legalism factories. We, we, some of us are tempted, you know, depending on our disposition, we're tempted all day long to measure our safety before God in this universe according to how we feel we have done in any situation, in relationships, jobs, attitudes, prayer lives, moment by moment. I mean, I do that. I'm both able to be incredibly lazy and an incredible religious legalist. It's an amazing combination I have. But, but I, I am taking temperature all day, you know, taking, how am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? And, and to be sure, like, listen, effort matters. Effort matters. We can live lives in ways that please God. The Bible talks about that a lot in the New Testament. Christians can please God. All our righteousness is not simply as filthy rags. Another sermon for another time. No, as new born-again Christians, we can now actually please God with, lot, with our lives. We can, and we do. There are often days where God is watching your life, and he is like, good job, Kale. I'm so proud of you. Like, it absolutely happens. Oh, Kate, yes, my girl, absolutely. And there are also days where he's like, oh, Kate, why? Kale, haven't we been through this, son? We grieve his spirit. We do. But if you're a dad, you know, right? Your daughter messes up, you get grieved, maybe you even get angry. Oh my goodness. <laughs> In your better moment, you love that kid like mad. You love him like mad. They had a good day, you're super excited. They totally blew it. You're grieved. But if you're even like one-tenth worth your salt as a dad, you just, you recover from that emotion and you just know you just love your freaking kid to death. So our effort matters. We can please God. We can grieve God. We can really mess up our lives. Consequences come that are bad. And sometimes we have to live with those for a long time. But that's all of us. We are all, we all have at best a very mixed record before God if we really saw the record. But whether things are going well or not by our evaluation, it is God's evaluation. It is God's judgment that counts. And to God's evaluation and to God's judgment, we must fly again, again, again for our deepest peace. On great days and on bad days, may we come back to righteous in Christ, forgiven in Christ, blameless in Christ, innocent in Christ, acquitted in Christ. Record cleared, debt paid. You'll accrue more debt tomorrow. It's already paid. 
maybe my favorite personal book in the Bible is the book of Galatians. In that book, the Galatians have taken their eyes off what we've been talking about, the blood of Christ as what makes them right before God. They're being taught by certain religious leaders that Christ's not enough. They have to also rely on their religious duties. And what happens to them is really sobering. They begin to lose their vitality in the Holy Spirit. You see these little hints in the book. I mean, most, you know, most theologians or most people are used to hearing Galatians as the book about the gospel and the truth of the gospel, which is true. But if you really get into the book of Galatians, what's amazing is the effects of losing the gospel start to really come through. Like Paul says little things like, what happened to your joy? What happened to your joy? You're joyless now. You're super religious people and now you're joyless. He says, he says in another place, watch out or you will bite and devour each other to death. They're losing their unity. They're losing their joy. They're super religious, but they're joyless and they're divisive and they're eating each other up. They're slowly deadening themselves to joy and to fruit. And what the, what the source of that deadening is, is that they've let go of their justification in Christ, the miracle of the gospel. They've let go of it. it and, and listen, this can happen to us. We, we may not start to believe, you know, impl- explicitly, I am now saved by my religious rituals. But what, what can be more subtle and, and no less dangerous for some of us is the way that we can slowly, bit by bit, start to live off our morality at, as the very foundation of our lives. We're not doing anything too bad as far as we're concerned. We might be doing our quiet times. We're tithing. We're giving to the poor. We're doing our jobs at work with some level of quality. But slowly and deadeningly, we're putting our hope that we're pretty good people. We're putting our hope in we're doing a pretty good job and therefore we're, we're good. And we're moving away from the grace of God and the gospel. God's wrath becomes more and more remote because it's hard to understand. And so it's just, it's just weird. And let's put it over here. God's eternal judgment. It's just hard to get. So we just put it over here. And so the gospel matters less and less and less. The blood of Christ matters less and less and less. And the world and everybody around us thinks we're fine. We're doing a good job. And, and, and what happens is our joy in Christ begins to seep away. Our zeal in Christ begins to seep away. And slowly by slowly, not overnight, like in some deconstructing, I'm twitty, tweeting that I, you know, I'm no longer Christian. No, it just, we just start to get lukewarm. We just start and, and to lose our joy, our vitality in Christ and self-righteousness. I'm okay because I'm okay because I'm doing a good job. It slips in. So in this case, Satan's trying to get us to forget our need for the gospel by convincing us that we're really fine without it. But it it can happen in less comfortable ways because that's kind of a comfortable, slow death, carbon dioxide style. But but it can happen in in worse ways, like, or at least worse feeling ways. Like, you know, I, I made the point, we can all grieve God by our sin. We can experience his discipline Sometimes a sense of heaviness that comes over us when we've blown it in some way and he's trying to get our attention, but we're not, we're not really confessing it. We're not really repenting. We're not really admitting that what he says about our sin is true. And we know that that can, David says it, it can, 
it can wear out his bones. It saps his life as he really refuses to come clean about his sin. And so may God give us grace to admit our sin and confess it to him and and believe that we'll find mercy and cleansing, right? Yes, amen. But, But for many of us, we can live in this almost constant state of low grade guilt. Like we've confessed known sins, We're not trying to walk away from Jesus, but we have this sense that we're always a moment away from being in trouble. We live always looking over our shoulder at what what bad things coming. It's this sense of remoteness from God, little joy. We just live in a haze of discouragement. And I think in, in that case, oftentimes, what one of the things that can be going in Satan is trying to convince us deep in our hearts, we're not even necessarily aware of it, the gospel is not enough for us. It's not enough. Christ's declaration of righteous over me, we're just dead to the joy in it that way. And, and our failures and our potential possible failures mean much more. I don't know about you, but I can live in, in both those places. The carbon monoxide of, I'm okay because I'm doing okay and also just the haze of discouragement. To both of those places, Paul would say, come back to the foundational facts of this universe. Come back to looking from God's point of view and not your point of view. Come back to recognizing again that God is pure and holy and righteous. And this world is under his judgment for its lack of love for him and neighbor every day. Come back to the foundational reality that he is, he is already showing that wrath and death and futility and disease and, and moral hardening. And he is one day going to call all people to an account for their sin come back to the foundational fact that he says in his word that judgment and eternal punishment are realities that are coming upon the world. That none of us will stand righteous in his sight by our own performance. That we all fall short. And Come back to the truth that in Christ, God grants to us as our only hope, but as our sure hope, forgiveness, the blood of his son, a full pardon and a declaration of righteousness in his courtroom because Jesus has taken away your unrighteousness. This is all we have to stand justified in his courtroom. And it is all we need. It is all we need. We must rely on the blood of Jesus to justify us at the moment we're first saved and we must rely on it every day until our salvation is complete. That is what it means to live from faith to faith. That is what it means to have truly saving faith. I have a lot of resources here if you struggle with this. 
I have some short excerpts from a John Piper book called When I Don't Desire God. I have some wonderful quotes about God's grace from Spurgeon. And I have something that I've compiled for myself just called Verses. I've called it Verses Concerning the Grace of God and Justifying Sinners by Faith and Our Need to Keep Hoping in His Grace and Not Ourselves. It's a long title. It's very Puritan-like <laughs> in its... Um, Overwordiness. But anyway, these are verses back and front about everything I'm talking about today. And I've spent time in my life where I just have to reverse these, re- rehearse these things almost on a, for some, certain seasons, almost on a daily basis, I've had to rehearse these things. Um, you guys are getting tired, I can see. And I, I just want to close with um, you, you guys aren't getting tired. Maybe it's just my kids. I see some kids yawning and stretching back there. One other resource I want to make you aware of is on our webpage. It's something I wrote two years ago plus for our church. Um, It was a real labor of love for me. And um, I don't want to try to like emotionally manipulate you into using it. I, j- I just know that when I wrote it, I felt grace from God to write it. I, I tried to put together a prayer. My goal was like, what if I could write a prayer that somebody could use every day for a while that would teach them like the very basics of the Christian life? Like what if I could write them kind of thorough prayer, like it's a 10 minute prayer, but if they could just use it to have as a devotional tool for months. Maybe they've been a Christian for years, but they need some healing in the basics again. Or maybe they're new and they just need a discipleship help. And, and so I wrote this little prayer called, well, it's actually a big prayer. It's called a prayer meditation for daily consecration. And what it's designed to do is to, is to help you commit yourself to take up your cross every day and follow Jesus It's not some get-out-of-jail-free card prayer, like just go and sin and live how you want. No, no, no. He's serious. You want to be my disciple? Take up your cross every day. Die to yourself every day and follow me. I'm serious. Like that's what, can't preach everything on a Sunday morning, right? We're preaching the free grace of of God. But he also says, hey, I'm, I'm supposed to be Lord. You want to have joy in me? You got to have focus on the gospel, but you also got to follow me. And so I was trying to take these two things and put them together. Like he seriously wants my whole life every day. He wants me to follow after him and to take up my cross and follow him. But he also commands me not to take my eyes off that he is my righteousness. He is my forgiveness. He is my justification, not how I'm going to do in following him today, not how well I'm going to do at taking up my cross. Do you get that? Like there's a tension there. It's a tension that I've always been, you know, aware of in the gospel. And this prayer I wrote is, is an attempt to kind of help that tension. And all I did was I took passages of scripture. It's not a sermon I wrote. It's just, I tried to put passages of scripture and maybe I rewrote some language in there to make it smoother but try to help you understand how to do that. So I'll, I'll, maybe this week we can send that out 
with the link. It's on our website, but Pam can direct you to it. Um, but I, I, I just think, I'll put this in a glib way, I really think that the, what that prayer is trying to capture is where the magic is. What that prayer is trying to capture is where the magic happens. When we're real honest with God, when we're real honest with God, that, that he deserves every day, like that when he says, take up my cross and follow me, if you want to know me, you got to die to yourself and you'll find your real life. You'll find it through dying to yourself. And every day I want to give that to you. Every day, let's meet up and, and let's regroup on that. Let's re-up on that. Like every day, that's what it is. If you want to be my disciple, that's how we do it. Like he's, he's completely serious about that. But when we take him up on that, he says, but listen. <laughs> it, starts, it starts by re-putting your hope in, in my grace for you. My blood that covers you. My forgiveness that's never going to be removed from you. And you following me today, it's not going to earn your salvation. In fact, I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you all the strength you need. Starting with finding your strength by remembering, I declare you righteous right now in my son. I declare you justified in my son. You're not going out today to earn it. You're going out today to experience what I've already purchased for you. So put your hand in mine and trust me, but let's go. And, and I think when we, when we start to get those things and put those things together, our lives become just magical, like absolutely miraculous, beautiful feasts. <sighs> okay. <laughs> I feel like Inspector Clouseau. <laughs> ah, the music stand ploy. <laughs> yes, very good. If you've watched Pink Panther movies, you know what that was, but... I want to close with a, with a little uh, quote from Charles Spurgeon. This will be um, his words, and, and really, I, I want to pray this quote over your lives. Lord, I pray that this quote in all of its goodness, it's not scripture, but it's, it's filled with the truth, and I pray that it would seep into hearts this morning that need to hear it. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self, to Jesus. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this. He is continually trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You will never be able to continue to the end. You have not the joy of his children you have such a wavering hold of Jesus. All these thoughts about self, they're about self. And we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is all in all. Remember, therefore, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. 
it is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look, so, look not so much to thy hand or to your hand which, by which you are grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. Keep your eyes simply on him. Let his death, his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercessions be fresh upon your mind when you wake in the morning. Look to him. When you lie down at night, look to him. Oh, let not your hope or fears come between you and Jesus. Follow hard after him and he will never fail you. Lord, I pray that for myself and everyone gathered here, we would look to Jesus, that we would be given grace again to follow you, but not put our hope in following you, but in you. That we would, Lord, truly seek to obey you with our lives, but that we would not put our hope in our obedience, but in you and your blood. Lord, that we would truly grow in being your fully devoted disciples, but that we would not put our hope in our devotion, but in you. Help us, Lord, to put these things together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen, amen, amen.